0: Hi, I'm Pastor Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to a message from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10am at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. So 1 Samuel chapter 31 and the story of this book, or this portion of the book of Samuel, comes uh, to a conclusion. And you'll remember that the last several chapters have been going back and forth between David and Saul and their respective predicaments. Um, And so David was in a situation where he had been living with the Philistines and found himself now marching into battle against his own people with the Philistines. How is he going to get out of that? And then it would jump over to see Saul on the eve of that very battle with the Philistine armies gathering and about to march against Israel. King Saul is panicking and desperate and seeking any way that he can get some guidance or some help. And he actually goes to a, a medium Um, one of these people who uh, communicates with the dead supposedly uh, outside of Israel and tries to to speak with Samuel and raise Samuel's spirit. And we saw that back in chapter 28 and it ended with very bad news for Saul and him going back to his armies the night before the battle. And then the author jumped back to David to see how he got out of the predicament in uh, Philistia uh, as the Philistine generals basically said, we don't trust David to fight with us, so send him back home. And so he went back home. Uh, God delivered him that way. And then they found all their, their city had been burned and their wives and children had been kidnapped. And so there was this rescue mission, all of this. So we've seen this back and forth between David's dilemma and Saul's dilemma and how God provides and protects and preserves and, and, and and delivers David in his, uh, in, in his dilemma. And Saul has a much bleaker outlook. Uh, there's, there's no hope. And in fact, the last word that Saul heard from the disturbed Samuel uh, was uh, that he and his sons would die in battle the next day. So that's the promise he's received. And he's gone back to uh, his armies to prepare for that battle as we look to David and, uh, and his men in the last couple of chapters. And so now having seen David's sort of rescue of his uh, his people's families and all the the spoils of that battle where they found the Amalekites and struck them all down and then sent the gifts to all the, the cities in the south of Judah where they had been kind of hanging out in their countryside. We saw in chapter 30 then David sort of like preparing for the throne, right? David is really poised now to take on the authority and the leadership of the the, the, the throne in Israel. Uh, and now the final chapter of this book turns to Saul. And so it'll end, not surprisingly, on a pretty sour note in terms of the, the, the flow of this narrative. But let's look uh, at this story and see what's there for us to to glean and understand about the ways of God and what he would have for us. So let's read together the first 7 verses and then we'll pause and talk from there. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, "Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me." But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. This is not a good day for Israel. This is a tragic end to the reign of Saul. And in fact, the whole nation of Israel is, is badly affected, uh, seriously affected by this battle of the Philistines. Um, so just back, backing up to the beginning of this story a little bit, we'll, just, we'll walk through it. So we get this very quick report. So we go from David sending gifts to all the, the leaders in the southern cities of Judah to immediately the Philistines and Israel were doing battle, right? So now we're in the middle of battle. So we've jumped scenes. The battle is going on. and We get this very quick report, and it is bad. Israel is getting trounced. They are being overtaken, they are being slain, they're falling on Mount Gilboa, Uh, the battle is in progress, and the Philistines are uh, having a heyday with Israel. All the men have either died or have fled, and actually the first report, the first name that we see of someone who fell is Jonathan, and I think there's maybe on the part of the author here an intention to sort of honor him because we recognize if Saul had continued as an obedient and faithful servant of God, Jonathan would have been the eventual king, right? He would have succeeded Saul. And, and what we saw from Jonathan in the, the, the portions of the story in 1 Samuel where he played a, a, an important role, Jonathan was a, was a noble, courageous, God-fearing, wise man. Jonathan would have been an excellent king, it seems to us. And so there's a, there's a certain kind of like extra layer to the tragedy of Saul when you see Jonathan was slain because Jonathan is slain along with the sons of Saul and along with Saul himself because of God's judgment on Saul and his own disobedience and how God had rejected him from the kingship. And so you, you, you think... You see Jonathan there slain on the, the field of battle, and there's just, there's a sense of sadness over what could have been, and, and, and the, the wreckage that sin leaves in its wake, and the, the carnage that it creates. And so, not for Jonathan's own sin, but he remained faithful to his father to the end, even though his father was... Uh, obviously not following the Lord and not even being wise by this time in his life and his his reign. Jonathan is right there by his side fighting faithfully until his last breath. And so we find Jonathan and the two other sons of Saul uh, are killed in this battle. And then the attention turns to Saul himself. In verse 3, the battle pressed hard against Saul And the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by them. So now we're zeroing in here on Saul. He's been wounded by arrows, and he turns to kind of a last resort, uh, turns to his armor bearer and says, take care of me, right? Go ahead and kill me now. Put me out of my misery, lest I be captured or or tortured, or he says mistreated uh, by the Philistines. So he knows that death is coming. Uh, Not just because the battle's not going well, but I'm sure he has the voice of Samuel echoing in his mind that he and his sons would all fall in battle. So this is a certainty to him. He will die. And now he's badly wounded uh, and death seems uh, imminent. And so rather than sort of be at the mercy of the Philistines, he asks his armor bearer, this close servant of his, uh, to take his life. And the armor bearer, I think to his credit, won't do it. Probably something is in his mind similar to what has been expressed by David multiple times. How could I stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed? Because whatever you can say about Saul as a person, he is still in the seat of authority that God gave him. He's still God's anointed king for Israel up to that time. And so the armor bearer is afraid and not willing to go through with it. And so Saul takes matters into his own hands, falls upon his own sword and thus is killed. So now we have the sons of Saul have died in the battle. We have Saul himself, the king, has died. In verse 6, we learn that all his men, and that refers to his sort of inner circle, the, the servants, the sort of warriors that had surrounded him, his guard, if you will. So all of his sort of most valiant you know, and close warriors have all died as well. So Saul and his sons and all of his men and his armor bearer uh, have all died. And then the men in the neighboring towns, even a little bit away from the actual, where the battle is currently raging. It even says across the Jordan. So there's a little bit of distance here. They find out how bad things are going in the battle and they take off they head for the hills. They're like, we're not staying here. We're packing up and we're leaving. So they abandoned their towns. And it tells us in verse seven that the Philistines came and lived in them. When the enemy moves in to the town that you abandoned, you lost. This is utter defeat. Israel is crushed beneath the military uh, might and, and strength of the Philistines. And all this, this is dark, this is heavy, this is not what when Saul began his reign as king, this is not where anybody hoped or envisioned that it would go, right? This is a terrible end to his reign and a dark season for Israel. But all of this is a fulfilling of God's Word, which is a sobering thought. It's brutal defeat, it's bitter desolation, and yet it proves once again God's faithfulness to His Word. God keeps His promises, and not just His promises of blessing and mercy, but His promises of discipline and of judgment. God keeps His Word. We can look back, if you, if, if you reflect back upon the, the, the kingship of Saul, you can see God, God's word being faithfully carried out. Even back in chapter 12, I'm gonna, why don't you turn there with me if you like. Uh, in chapter 12, this was right after Saul had been installed as king. All right. He's led this uh, first kind of military attack, and the people are, have celebrated him and installed him as king. And Samuel speaks to the people of Israel on this occasion of Saul's installation. And what he tells them in verses 13 to 15. So this is 1 Samuel 12, beginning of verse 13. He, Samuel says, Now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, Yahweh has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. That was a promise from God through his prophet Samuel back at the very beginning of Saul's kingship. If you'll follow God, if you'll obey him, if you'll honor him and listen to his word, things will go well for you. But if you don't, then the hand of the Lord will be against you. And so as we see Saul falling in battle on Mount Goboah, we see the application of this promise of God. If you rebel, if you don't honor me, if you disregard my commandments, my hand will be against you. And that's exactly what has happened, because we've seen Saul over and over has rejected God and dishonored him and neglected his word, and God has judged him thus. Brothers and sisters, this is no less true for us today than it was for Israel back then. Paul tells us in Galatians 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Obedience and faithfulness to God and his word yield blessing and joy. Disobedience and rebellion bring discipline and hardship into our lives. That is a principle of following God and of living in this fallen world as sinners. If we obey him and follow him, he blesses, he brings joy. If we disobey and dishonor, he brings discipline and hardship to us. And unless you're inclined to think, well, I'm a Christian, so this doesn't apply to me, right? God's already forgiven me of all my sins. It's all done, so that's not true anymore. Let me remind you of the words of Hebrews chapter 12, where God tells us that we are his children, And as a good father, he disciplines those he loves. So, in fact, the discipline of God in our lives is proof of his love. It's proof of his presence. It's proof of his acceptance of us as his children. And so it is still true for Christians. Yes, we are accepted by God on the sheer basis of grace and mercy. But to the extent that we honor and obey and Mm -hmm heed God's word, he will bless. And to the extent that we dishonor and disobey and rebel, he will discipline. That is the case in our lives. So he fulfilled his promise in the sense of this initial warning he gave to Saul and all the people. If you'll follow me, it will go well. If you'll rebel against me, my hand will be against you. We also see a fulfillment of God's word of rejection that he gave to Saul in chapter 15. Back in chapter 15 was where he had gone into battle against the Amalekites and God had told him to utterly destroy everything. And yet Saul spared the king and the best uh, of the, the animals and things. And when Samuel said, why am I hearing these sheep bleeding and things like that. The bleating of these sheep in my ears. He said, well, we only save those to sacrifice them to God, right? But the point was, they, he didn't obey. He was like, I have this for a sacrifice to God, but the point is, I gave you a command and you didn't obey it. And that's where the famous line comes from Samuel. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Like God isn't interested in the sacrifice itself if you're disobeying him in order to get to it, right? obedience is better than sacrifice. And so Samuel said to Saul in chapter 15, verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. We know by now, of course, that the neighbor is David. And David has been anointed privately and is arising and and being prepared for the throne even now. And so as we see Saul Saul on the battlefield at Mount Goboa, we hear the words of God through Samuel again, back in chapter 15. The Lord has torn the kingdom from you. And he's given it to a neighbor who's better than you. Just as he said. And he fulfills his final word to Saul through the, the soul of Samuel that he had raised uh, at the, the, that scene in Endor in chapter 28, where he said... That, that Saul and his sons would fall on the same day in this battle. And so now that's come to pass. So time and again, from the beginning of Saul's reign to the rejection of his reign in chapter 15, and even to that final word of judgment in chapter 28, God has given him clear warnings and clear pronouncements of judgment, and now it all comes to pass. So as Saul falls on the field of battle. It's tragic, it's hard, it's dark for Israel. It's not what they expected. It's not what they wanted, but God is being faithful. God is fulfilling his word. And listen, a God who keeps his word is a God who could be trusted. He does not shift or shrink back. He does not change his mind. What he says he will do. Now, perhaps you need to be comforted today by that thought. Perhaps you need to be comforted by God's faithfulness, to be reminded that the good that he has promised you in Christ is truly yours. You really are his child if you've trusted in Christ and rested in him for salvation. You really do have a future and an eternity and a life with him forever that's coming for you. You really do have his presence with you. He's promised he'll never leave you or forsake you. Maybe you need to be comforted today by his promises and his faithfulness. Just believe him. Trust him. He's there. It's true. But perhaps you need to be, you need to see in God's faithfulness a warning. Don't dabble with sin. Don't ignore the commands of Christ to his church through his word. Don't make provision for the flesh. Because we know how that will go. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. So perhaps we need to hear a word of warning from the voice of the Holy Spirit in this passage if we disobey and neglect God's word and dishonor him discipline and hardship come into our lives well let's look at the next part of the story so the battle is over the Philistines have completely defeated Israel Israelites are on the run and have abandoned their towns and the Philistines have moved into them Look at verse eight. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Mel- Goboa. So they cut off his head, and stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the Tamarisk tree in Jabesh, and fasted seven days. So now that the battle is over, the Philistines, they're just partying. They're, they're just celebrating. They're making it known throughout the land of Philistia that they've defeated King Saul. They've defeated the people of Israel. And so they cut off his head. And that seems to me like what's happening there is that they're kind of parading the head of Saul around the towns. Hey, look who we got, right? Um, that was sort of a custom of the day. And so the, the, the news begins to spread the Philistines have won Saul has fallen Israel is destroyed they take the the bodies of Saul and and his sons and pin them to the wall in this is interesting in the town of Bethshon that's one of these Israelite towns that has been abandoned so that was a town of Israelites they've left it the Philistines have moved into it and now they've pinned the bodies of Saul and his sons to a wall in that Israelite town obviously as a statement that they have utterly owned and defeated the people of Israel. But even, even more brazen than the sort of just, just boasting and, and gloating about their victory over this, this enemy of theirs, even more brazen is that is that they make a mockery of Yahweh. Did you see that? They, they take the armor of Saul and they placed it in the temple of Ashtaroth. You know, Ashtaroth is a word that, that means, it can mean kind of a general, like, goddesses. So that, that is probably not a particular deity. It's probably a group of deities, of goddesses that the people of Philistia worshipped. But they take the armor of Saul and they place it in the temple of their false gods or, or goddesses, as it were. This is a clear statement on their part that our gods have defeated the God of Israel. That's the way that that would play in the Philistine newspapers and news radio if it existed at the time, right? Our gods are stronger than the other guy's God. That's, that's how that would play, what they're doing. It, it, it kind of harkens back to a story you might remember back in chapter five, when the Philistines had defeated Israel and captured the Ark of the Covenant what did they do with the Ark? They took the Ark and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. And then they went in the next morning and they found that Dagon had fallen over and his hand had been, had been knocked off. And so they placed him back up on his shelf. And then the next day they came back and he had fallen over and was shattered. His head was gone and he was in pieces, right? So they thought, look, Dagon has defeated Yahweh, the god of Israel. And the very presence of the Ark of the Covenant in that place overpowered their false god. And so we know the truth. We know that the, the Philistines' false gods have not defeated Yahweh. We know that Yahweh's purposes are not yet done. He's not given up on Israel. He's not given up on his people. But it seems at the moment that Yahweh has been defeated by these false gods of Philistia. It's a statement of victory, the victory of their false gods over the God of Israel. And any true follower of God, any true lover of Yahweh, any true believer in Christ ought to cringe a bit at that notion, at the mockery that's given to God, at the idea of sort of belittling him by suggesting that our gods are better or stronger, that we've defeated him. It, it, It ought to make your blood boil just a little bit to see God dishonored in this way. And I think, again, one of the things that we've seen about David, I think, throughout this book is that that driving passion for him, when he's doing well, we've seen him at low points, but when he's following God, when he's being obedient and courageous, that driving passion in his life is the honor of God. And so there's another one of those themes, I think, throughout this book, and we see the belittling of and the dishonoring of God through the acts of the Philistines here. So the chapter ends on, on on a bit of a note of of uh, not sure what to say. Here. There's there's a little bit of warmth. If there's a tender or hopeful or warm note to be struck anywhere in this story, it happens in these last couple of verses. Uh, in verse 11, we learn about the men of Jabesh Gilead who hear what the Philistines have done, and they ro- they rise and go an all night journey to Beth Shan to remove the bodies of Saul and his sons, and, uh, and to preserve them from further uh, dishonor. Uh, they, they journeyed about 10 miles. They crossed the Jordan River, because that's where Jabesh Gilead was. And so it, it's quite a risky journey, and obviously they're going into a place where now the Philistines have taken over. So it's a, it's a dangerous journey, and yet and we, it tells us that they were valiant men. And so this is an act of courage, an act of self-sacrifice to go and to bring back the bodies of Saul and of his sons. And they, they burn their bodies and then bury them. Now the burning of bodies is, uh, is not a Hebrew custom. Um, it seems in this case they probably were, were kind of trying to, be, to hurry. Uh, just do something quickly to to protect the bodies from further tampering or dishonoring by the people of uh, Philistia. Uh, and so they, they burn the bodies and then they take their bones and bury them in their own town, in an Israelite town of Jabesh Gilead under the trees. And I think it's interesting to think about where these people came from. Why do the men of Jabesh Gilead care this much about uh, about the body of Saul and his bones? If you'll turn back to chapter 11, your memory might be refreshed in that we have seen the men of Jabesh-Gilead before. In chapter 11, Nahash the Ammonite, one of the strong and cruel enemies of uh, the Israelites, had come to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, that very town, and they said to us, uh, uh, they were about to destroy them. They were fighting them. And the men of Jabesh-Gilead said, can we make a deal? Just let us be your slaves and we don't have to fight at all. We'll just sign ourselves over to you. We'll just be your slaves. And Nahash said, I'll make that deal on one condition. If you let me gouge out the right eye of every man in the city then you can be my one eyed slaves. So this is like, this is barbaric and this is cruel. And so the the men of Jabesh Gilead basically said, give us a week to see if we can find some help and then we'll let you know. And so in that week, and they agreed to that, strangely, I guess that's just confidence on their part. They're not gonna find anybody that's gonna be able to fight us. So during that week, news spread throughout Israel and the word got to the newly anointed king, Saul. And when Saul heard that this threat was made against the men of Jabesh-Gilead, it says to us that the, in verse 6, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul and his anger was greatly kindled. And then we see Saul spring into action to courageously and viciously fight for the salvation of Jabesh-Gilead. And so that is what happens there. He leads this army of uh, uh, 300,000 men, excuse me, uh, was it 30,000, 30, not 300,000, of 30,000 men, and they go and they defeat the Amalekites. It says they fight them until, uh, they strike them down until the heat of the day. And in that way, the, the town of Jabesh-Gilead was delivered from the threat of Nahash and the Ammonites. That was the event that happened right before Saul was officially installed as king. And that's what I read to you earlier, where Samuel said, uh, if you'll obey, it will go well with you if you don't, right? So Saul leads this military victory against the Ammonites on behalf of Jabesh Gilead. And so it is an act of kindness, an act of Uh, uh, Of courage and an act of deliverance on the part of Saul that these men of Jabesh-Gilead have never forgotten. So Saul, though he has spiraled downward and has uh, died and and his kingship has ended in disgrace, these men of Jabesh-Gilead, they remember the, 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 the kindness, if you will, the deliverance of Saul on their behalf. And so they will not have the Dishonoring of Saul and his sons at the hands of these godless Philistines. And so they courageously march and bring their bodies back. Grace will do that. A, a memory of and a recognition of a gift, an act of kindness, an act of deliverance will lead you to acts of courage and acts of self-sacrifice. That's the way that it is for those of us who have trusted in Christ and seen our sins forgiven and new life has been given to us. When we think of the grace of God to us in Christ, it leads us to acts of courage. It leads us to obedience and to greater faithfulness to him. That's the the role that grace is supposed to play in our lives. And we see that happening here uh, in the men of Jabesh Gilead. As they rescue, as it were, the body of Saul. Um, and so that, that's where the story kind of ends. Now we, we've noted before that, that as originally composed, 1st and 2nd Samuel was not two books, but, but one unified book, the, the book of Samuel. And so the story doesn't really end here, it, it, it continues into 2nd Samuel. So the division of the book uh, came later, and it's a bit arbitrary, but that the book is divided here, um, that this is the part of the story, uh, or this is the part where, where they placed that, that division before they carried on with it, should give us pause. It gives us some things to, to think about. And I, I thought back to, as I was reflecting on the ending of this portion of, of the story, and, uh, of this book, I thought back to the themes of First Samuel that were listed for us in Hannah's prayer. At the very beginning of this book. If you'll turn back to chapter 2, you'll remember that Hannah was the the barren woman who pleaded with God for a son. And she said, if you'll give me a son, I will devote him to you and to your service all the days of his life. And so God heard her prayer and blessed her with a son, Samuel. And Samuel grew up in the temple and grew up to be a prophet and a judge and this leader of, of God's people. Who the book bears his name. So that, so Hannah is Samuel's mother, and in response to God's answering of her prayer uh, and, and giving her the son, she offers this uh, this song or th- this prayer in chapter two that really enumerates themes that we see throughout the book of 1 Samuel. Themes of the poor. Being exalted and the powerful brought low. The weak strengthened and the strong becoming weak. God guards his faithful ones but he cuts off the wicked. Let's look at these verses. I'm just going to read to you all ten verses of her song. Beginning of chapter 2 verse 1. Hannah prayed and said my heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed." Do you hear echoes of the stories that we've read and and covered in this book in that song? It's difficult not to, it's difficult to hear those who were full have hired themselves out for bread and not think of Saul, desperate and destitute and seeking the services of a witch, an indoor, who ironically feeds him. It's hard to hear he raises up the poor from the dust to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor and not think of David the humble shepherd from Bethlehem on the run in the hills of Israel, finally now on his way toward the seat of power and authority as Israel's king. And if you consider the fall of Eli and his wicked sons and the raising up of Samuel to take the leadership and become the judge and the prophet of Israel, consider the rise of Saul when he first came into uh, into authority as the king and all the promise that he showed and, and the, the way that he fought valiantly for the Lord and his people. And then you consider the fall of Saul, as we've seen him over these last 15 chapters, just sort of spiraling downward and all the way to death on the battlefield here in chapter 31. And the rise of David. As Saul is going downward, David is on the upswing, right? He's gathering people to himself. He's beginning to fight and earning a reputation uh, as, as a valiant warrior for God's people. He's uh, positioning himself now in relationships with the southern princes in Judah and all these things, right? We see as Saul is on the way down, David is on the way up. This is, this is the, the flow of the book of, of 1 Samuel. It really continues through 2 Samuel as well. And so those themes of, of, of the exalted being, excuse me, the poor being exalted and the powerful being brought low these carry throughout this book. And so you, you see this final sort of expression, the lowest point, obviously, for Saul as his kingship comes to an end. And so indeed, though the book ends on an apparently bleak and tragic note, In the wider context of the story it's telling, there is actually a ray of hope piercing the clouds. You see, the anointed of Yahweh, the promised king, David, is now in a position to take the throne. And We've spent 10 or so chapters following him in the wilderness, on the run for his life, and then making alliances with the Philistines and all this stuff. And you're thinking, when is God's kingdom going to come? Well, now, with Saul fallen and David positioned to take leadership, we see the pathway is smoothing out for David. And so there, there's this forward-looking hope that, that a reader of 1 Samuel has. Now, maybe finally, God's anointed King David can take the throne and get things done, right? Lead the nation back to his ways and to his heart. And so there's this, there's this ray of, of, of hope of the way that things could go. I don't want to disappoint you too badly, but if you read very far into 2 Samuel, you'll find David's not really the answer either. David has a lot of potential and a lot of flashes of sort of rightly honoring God and leading his, his people well. But David is a man beset by all manner of, of sins and, uh, and inner turmoil that leads to terrible acts of wickedness. And uh, eventually, his leadership and kingdom will end in disappointment. If the people of Israel are thinking, this is our king, this is our deliverer, this is the one who will make things right for us, they're gonna be disappointed because David doesn't do that. David and his kingship will end in disappointment, but there is a promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that gives not just a ray of hope, but a sure and confident word of his grace and his provision for his people. So when David actually asks God if he can build a house for him, And God says to David, I don't need you to build me a house. In fact, I'm going to build you a house. And what he means here is a a dynasty, a lineage. I will make your house sure. Down in, so let me read you a little bit from 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I think there he's talking about Solomon, the the son of David, who would build a temple. And then he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So the promise of God to David is, your throne will continue. And he begins by speaking, I think, of his immediate descendants. But then he starts speaking in much broader terms than any son of David can ever actually fulfill. So when he starts to say that your throne, that that, that I will establish his throne forever, and uh, it will never end, right? Right? Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne established forever. He's not looking at David. He's not looking at Solomon. He's looking at a man who would come much farther down the road. The man who would be king is no mere man. The man who would be king is the one who would reign on the throne of his father David forever. The man, Jesus Christ. And so, as 1 Samuel ends with this tragic, bleak, dark situation, there is nevertheless a ray of hope looking forward, not to David, not to David's son, but to the king who would come about a thousand years later from David's family. And he would also be born in Bethlehem. And he would be humble and not coming in earthly might and power and with a sword to conquer. His kingdom would be established not by the taking of of power, but by the sacrificial giving of his life. And that's what Advent is all about. That's what Advent hope means. It means we look back to the grace of God in sending this promised Messiah, this promised deliverer. And it's not David. It's David's greater son, as the scripture calls him in one place, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we enter this Advent season, and as we conclude the book of 1 Samuel, we have our eyes rightly on the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised and given deliverer of his people, who will save his people from their sins. Let's pray together.